Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter. In this podcast, we feature the first full-length lecture in our new series, The Elite, Old and New. The talk is entitled The Insecurity of the Ruling Class and the Rise of the Cultural Elite. In the wake of growing threats to the traditional foundations of power, the lecture explores how and why culture has emerged as the dominant mode of elite self-understanding and self-definition and consequently become a key battleground in how elites pursue and respond to challenges to their authority. The lecturer is Professor Frank Faraday, sociologist and social commentator and author of the recently published book 100 Years of Identity Crisis, Culture War Over Socialization. In many ways, what I want to do is to um, explore issues that are very difficult to uh, isolate and capture through concepts because they are evolving all the time. And uh, in many ways, the, the way that I'm going about it, and it's very much work in progress, is that I'm having a kind of silent conversation with C.W. Wright Mills, who wrote a book called The Power Elites in 1956. And what I'm doing is going back and forth, seeing what he had to say uh, in his, his time and uh, kind of contrasting that with the experience that's going on now. Now, in many ways, uh, for Mills, the issue of the elites was fairly straightforward because it's the way that he saw it, there was a clearly identifiable, you know, sort of military elite, which he saw as being very important at the height of the Cold War. There was the corporate elite, the economic elites, which, you know, are the capitalist class, the, the guys who run the big corporations. And he saw that as being really quite important. And then there were the political elites. And these were the people that ran the state, that ran the governments in the United States. And he basically talked about the way in which a kind of network had been created and forged between these three different elites. Uh, and and that's, that was the uh, focus of his analysis. Now, it's very clear that today, such an elite uh, complexion does not exist because for a start, the kind of military industrial complex that he talked about uh, does not appear to have the same kind of significance. The military elites aren't particularly important in the way that we're looking at things. And one of the things that uh, wasn't as important in his days that's much more important now is the cultural elites. In the days of uh, uh, C.W. Wright Mills, the cultural elites were, were mentioned in passing when he talked about the role of celebrities. And he made the point that uh, the political elites, uh, the military elites often relied on celebrities and the kind of fame that celebrity brought to kind of both give them prestige, but also to deflect attention from some of the issues that uh, they were confronted with. C.W. Wright Mills rejected the idea of the ruling class, uh, which he saw as, as essentially a Marxist concept, principally on the ground that he felt that the ruling class tended to focus far too much attention on the economic side of things rather than on the political side of things. And he felt that it was important to have a much more uh, nuanced view about the way that the world worked. Now, that was his. That was his analysis. Today, when I look at my world, 
it becomes interesting for me that whenever people talk about the elites or the new elites, they almost always talk about the cultural elites. And the reason why they talk about the cultural elites, that side of the equation is fairly easy to understand, is because it very much reflects the insecurities that are bound up with the rest of the ruling oligarchies and the rest of the ruling elites. It seems to me that uh, uh, one way or the other, everybody from the, from the government to the civil service, all the way through the heads of corporations, rely on the cultural elite to endow their particular status with a, a degree of legitimation. That's the main role that they play. And therefore, you have a situation where all the leaders of all the major institutions, be it business or state or civil service or education or cultural institutions, are quite happy to not only pay a lip service, but also to actively promote identity politics. I think that's, that's one of the interesting uh, developments that has occurred. And at the same time, from their point of view, by refocusing the issue that confronts society around the questions of culture, to some extent, they're able to deflect from their own problems, but also kind of play a role in gaining a certain degree of status and prestige. Now, that side of things is fairly straightforward. I think that when you look at the way that the, the, the world works, it becomes really interesting. If you think, for example, yeah. every time Apple or any other big company launches a particular uh, app or a particular computer or something, it turns into a big cultural event where you have you know, movie stars going there and you have rock uh, sort of singers going there. And the whole thing is kind of put on as a kind of cultural circus. You know, and, and, and they're trying to give, you know, when, when, when they launch these uh, products, they try to give their product some kind of cultural meaning that, you know, we, you know, and the language they use is very much about uh, a, an attempt to say that we're not just simply selling goods. We're not just simply, you know, working the market. What we're also doing is providing some meaningful experience for everybody. And that kind of uh, use of culture is, is really quite important. But the problem that I have is that there is much more to the elites than the cultural side of things. That is really uh, to do with legitimation and the, and, and the attempt to influence the way that people uh, think within society. But there are some other bigger questions that are more difficult to answer, such as, for example, how do they cohere together as a group? How do they perceive their role? And how do they recognize each other? I mean, these are very important questions, uh, something that, in a sense, one is continually uh, sort of struggling with. For example, uh, an important question is, is how's the standpoint of the individual member of the ruling class reconciled with something wider and uh, that reflects the interest? Is there a distinct class or elite interest that encompasses all sections of society? Then there are questions to do with, with, with practice. How, how do they exercise their power? How do they manage, you know, what kind of practices did they use to achieve that? What is their source of prestige or authority? And most important of all, are they uh, a ruling class or power elite with different components, such as the political side, the economic or the cultural? Now, when we're looking at the analysis, when we're looking at the situation, it becomes very evident 
uh, that uh, these uh, contemporary elites or a ruling caste, whatever you want to call them, is nothing like the old establishment. And certainly is not at all like, and doesn't behave like the old capitalist class. I think there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, one of the most important issues that is very rarely addressed in literature is that it simply lacks authority and it lacks the capacity to, to turn its considerable resources into a power that achieves its objectives. I think this is one of the most interesting points for me because it's one thing to have power, it's, you know, but and it's one thing to have resources uh, available to you, financial, cultural, political resources. But one of the things that becomes very evident is that they find it very difficult to turn those resources into instruments of power that actually gets a result, that actually you know, achieves what, it, what, what, the, what the elites set out to do. Because one of the things that we're finding a lot is that governments are not able to uh, achieve objectives domestically, certainly not internationally. And similarly, when you look at the civil service or other institutions, there's always a big gap between their intended uh, objectives and, and, and what, what's actually been realized. I think it's also interesting that, uh, and this is something that all commentators, serious commentators have observed, is that the elites are characteristically insecure. They do behave in ways that has all the hallmarks of uh, both psychological and cultural insecurity. And this is demonstrated in all kinds of different ways. I think the most significant way in which is demonstrated is the continuous outsourcing of decision-making. The way within which there's a kind of aversion to take a decision and to kind of act on it. And in many ways, another uh, manifestation of this insecurity that they possess uh, is, that, is the readiness with which they have embraced a wokish cultural politics of identity, or at the very least, the readiness with which they've given way to it. And I think it's enormously interesting uh, how, how fast and how thoroughly uh, the different sections of the elites have jumped on board uh, of the identity political project. And you can, you know, you have to un understand that the, the, there's many reasons why they have done that. But the most important reason has been because for them, this is both a way of staying relevant and staying in touch. And it's a way of legitimating themselves. It's almost as if they're, they're aware of the fact that there's a kind of chasm between their position and the rest of society. And that seems to be uh, really quite important. Now, now, why is this happening? Why is there this uh, insecure management of, of, of life? You know, why are they, in a sense, trying to in, you know, internalize and embrace the cultural politics of identity? I think there are a number of reasons for it, and I want to spend a bit, bit of time looking at it, and because that allows us to understand the social dynamics uh, in, in, in elite politics. I think the first point, something that I've written about a long time ago in my book, Politics of Fear, is because the political elites are really running on empty. They really lack uh, the resources, the convictions, the outlook and the values that can give them 
a sense of direction and confidence. They certainly uh, are dispossessed of even of those values into which the previous generation of elites were socialized. And when you kind of look at the, the, the new establishment, let's say in Britain, the people that uh, personified that establishment, and you compare them to the old establishment, the ones in the 60s and the early 70s, you can see very, very clearly that there's a, a, it's, a it's a qualitatively different uh, group of individuals in the way that they project themselves and the way they project their power. Now, most explanations of this development uh, that uh, I've been describing focus on the economic and social changes that kicked in during the 1970s. And these were things like uh, the development of finan financialization and deregulation, which actually speeded up the separation of ownership and control within industry and created this new group of managers who were uh, in a sense aloof and, and, and distinct and separate from the ownership uh, of economic life, of, of corporations, all, the, all those things. So that's the first thing that they emphasize. The second thing they emphasize is the rise of digital technology and the way within which digital technology disrupted the, the way that the corporate world and economic life uh, was uh, conducted. The third element that they often emphasize to explain these changes, these disruptions, is the diffusion of global power after the end of, second, of the Cold War, that with the end of the Cold War, you did have this diffusion of global power, which kind of presented new challenges to all the, uh, all the elites uh, of all the different Western societies. Uh, and because they were now confronted with a much more fluid situation for which they were really unprepared. They also emphasize, and I think that, that's an uh, interesting element, is the, is the way in which institutions became disrupted. The way with, with, which uh, institutions that pre-existed the end of the Cold War, to some extent became fragmented and, and, and not able to have the resilience to adapt to the new world, new circumstances. And because of the changes that have occurred, it led to the erosion of institutional loyalties uh, where, there, where civil servants and uh, other people uh, uh, were no longer as loyal to the institutions that they were working in. Marketization, the bringing in of consultants and everything else really led to a situation where in many uh, state institutions, you had a palpable loss of institutional memory, you know, where there's a lack of continuity uh, that is really quite important. And you can see this, if any of you have any business with the civil service, you, you, know, you do realize immediately that it is no longer that robust, stable, confident uh, institution that it used to be in uh, previous times. So these are the kind of uh, factors that are emphasized in some of the literature that I looked at. And they're important, they're not, they are quite important, but I think there's much more to it than that. I think there are some other factors that are critically important uh, in understanding the decline and the unraveling of the old establishment. Because it seems to me that the, the picture that one needs to be able to uh, understand and explain is that you have uh, a group, for, which for lack of a better word, you can call the new establishment, who is not the equivalent of the old establishment. It's not 
that they're, they're new or, or, they're, or they're the same. There's something quite fundamentally qualitatively different between them. And probably the most uh, important uh, symptom of the difference between the old and the new establishment is the fact that this group that we're now living with, that's, that's running our society or pretending to run our society, as a group is not prepared to take responsibility for rule and direction. And we just look at the speedy way in which you know, ministers resign, you know, MPs resign after a few months when they run into trouble, the, 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 the speed with which CEOs go from one job to another. You know, there is simply no idea that you are responsible for the long-term success of that company. There's no idea that somewhere you are responsible for the long-term uh, sort of future of that civil service institution that you're working with. There is absolutely no uh, sort of uh, organic connection between you as a leader and, and that institution. And I think that's, that is quite important because if you have uh, a group which you can call an establishment that does not take responsibility, that is, hasn't got a sense of duty towards anything. We're talking about something that is inherently very fragile and, 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 and ultimately lacking in the capacity uh, to make things happen. I think there are a number of reasons why this occurred that uh, I, I want to emphasize. I think the first reason is that uh, the Western elites, the Western ruling classes, lost their coherence, lost their kind of uh, uh, l'esprit de corps, which they had earlier on due to the end of the Cold War. I think the moral authority of these elites declined fundamentally with the end of the Cold War because their moral authority uh, was sustained through the ideological war against the Soviet Union. I think the end of the Cold War had this perverse effect of exposing all the fragility and all the weakness that uh, pre-existed the, the end of the Cold War, but which, which, which now could no longer be ignored and which now meant that uh, that kind of uh, forced coming together against an external enemy, you know, gradually unraveled and, and had a very important impact in the conduct of elite life throughout the Western world. At the same time as this occurred, what you also had was the absence or, or the loss of domestic opposition to elite rule. Because what happens in the 70s and in the early 80s is domestic opposition to the capitalist uh, system, domestic opposition to the way that the uh, economic uh, elites who are running society gradually disintegrates. This is the time at which you know, radical movements decline, become marginalized and the trade unions uh, sort of become, uh, you know, become in a sense irrelevant certainly compared to the role that they used to play in the past. This, was very, this is, had a very important effect on the elites because the elites you know, sort of to some extent you know, sort of saw themselves through the, through the opposition that they had with the people below. It's, it's that kind of relationship between the different classes that gave the elites a certain definition of who they were. Uh, they, could, they could to some extent that, that, their defensive reaction against the pressure from below, very often turned into a, a kind of a positive resource that uh, to which they kind of interpreted and understood their own world. 
Now, it's in this context, when you have the end of the Cold War, the end of domestic opposition, that the processes that we've been discussing intensify. You know, financialization, deregulation, rise of digital technology, the diffusion of global power, the disruption of institutions, all the, and, and the end of institutional loyalties, all come together precisely at this time. And in particular, they highlight the, the weakening of, not just uh, uh, of, uh, of ordinary institutions, but particularly of the state and the state machinery, precisely at a time when the state becomes, if anything, more important. So in a sense, it's, uh, it, 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 this is the situation that we're confronted with. And it seems to me that the problem that we have in understanding it is that it's unclear if the institutional practices for expressing elite interests in either the political and economic dom domain uh, exist, and if they exist in what form, because in a sense, we're, we're kind of looking at a sort of a, a world where the underpinning, the institutional underpinning of elite power and elite rule seems to be uh, very opaque, very difficult to kind of grasp. To understand what I'm getting at is if, is if, if you compare the situation today with the power elites discussed by C.W. Wright Mills, he refers to command posts. And by command posts, he talks about the stable institutional underpinning of elite power. And he talks about the command posts of the military, the command posts of the uh, political uh, sort of class, the command posts of the corporations. But today, what has happened is that as these command posts have gradually become weaker and weaker and weaker, a very defensive reaction to this weakening uh, by the elites has actually made the situation worse uh, with the passing of time. And I think that in particular what has happened is that uh, <clears throat> in, a, in, a, in an attempt to insulate itself from the pressures, global pressures and domestic pressures, a number of steps were taken by the elites, all of which, in a sense, distanced themselves from their own society and weakened them. I think the most important uh, development that, that has occurred in the last 20 or 30 years um, is the dispersal of policymaking, the erosion of boundaries between the government on the one hand, non-governmental organizations, international organizations, and the way in which, for example, economic institutions, corporations, and businesses have become seamlessly mer merged with political institutions. In many ways, what has happened is that uh, the in with, with its insecurity, there's been a growing tendency to compensate for the absence of moral legitimacy by relying on public relations experts, by relying on uh, other kinds of experts uh, in, in different domains of, 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 their, of, of, of their world. And essentially what has happened is that uh, a large sections of the elites who are responsible for the conduct of different institutions have turned into managers rather than to leaders. I wanna draw your attention to the important development that occurs in relation to this, which is that they have become in the course of doing this, in the course of uh, losing their hold on their institutions, they become more and more uprooted, more and more deracinated. 
often sections of the elites are the ones that are most denationalized, who have the weakest connection with communities or with their own past. I think that development, that sensibility became very, very clear during the Brexit uh, referendum, when the Remainer uh, elite, to some extent, came across as somebody who really did not exist in, uh, anywhere that has got a, 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 in, in, in any kind of space, a physical space, no clear roots in, within any kind of communities. And I think as a result of that, when you have uh, sort of uh, the, uh, the, our, our elites being so denationalized with such weak connections to their community, there is no way of, of enacting any kind of responsible form of elite rule. So the most important characteristic of these elites that we're discussing is that they are irresponsible. Irresponsible in the sense that there is no, uh, you know, there is no way within which they are taking responsibility for the consequences of their action or the consequences of their way their institutions uh, work. I think what I'm trying to say, and this, this is something I alluded to in my most recent book, uh, uh, is that power, elite power, if it doesn't have meaning, it doesn't have a relationship to a, an institution, a clearly worked at a relationship to an institution, becomes very difficult to exercise. And that's one of the fantastically interesting things is that you know, we have a lot of people with a lot of resources at their disposal, but they are not able to translate those resources into power, into power in, in the way that we've kind of classically understood it. I think the uh, impotence of the elites uh, is strikingly demonstrated by the way that the British government simply cannot stop people coming into Britain from France illegally and has got a clue about how to defend its border and, and is no longer even talking about the need for it to secure its own national border. It's not a big issue for them. And the reason why it's not a big issue for them because they're, they know that they would, they're hopeless in being able to do something about it. So what do you do? Or what the elite does is it tries to depoliticize everything. And the way it depoliticizes everything is by suggesting it's out of our hands. It's totally out of our hands. You cannot take responsibility for it. And the way you depoliticize is either by saying that the market determines everything, you know, the, the usual Tina, there is no alternative. It's the market that has the last say. And then when it's not the market that determines everything, what you argue is that, oh, this has got to be done because research shows, you know, research indicates it's an evidence-led uh, evidence kind of uh, policy that we're kind of putting forward. It's nothing to do with us. It's nothing to do with our, you know, our decision-making. It's the evidence that, that is responsible for this. Or alternatively, say, this is what science says. We're following the science. You know, uh, and it's the science and the experts that are uh, articulating the science that can dictate this. So in this way, what you have is a kind of self-conscious reliance on professionalism, professional expertise, to construct an apparently neutral, non-ideological form of political domination and political rule. 
And in effect, what we're seeing happening today, and it's fantastically interesting, is that gradually political rule is turning into a form of public administration or technocratic governments, as I discuss in, in 100 years, 100 years of identity crisis. And in a sense, the technocratic governance is one that continually expands juridification, that to say the legal, legal instruments into different domains of life and particularly process. You know, we often talk about process as, 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 as just a trivial thing that happens in businesses and it's really good that process occurs. <clears throat> but process is not used by the elites as a way of, of, of legitimating their irresponsibility. So, you know, when you have, a, as you do now, a, a debate about parliamentarians in Britain breaking the rules, who decides whether they've broken the rules or not? Well, in the first instance, it is these neutral technocrats who run these different inspectorates, who run these different agencies, who make decisions but they make it, these decisions on the base of process rather than anything to do with uh, uh, sort of justice or values or moral norms. So what you have is a kind of expansion of public administration and of public administrators, who in a sense have got a tremendous uh, influence and, 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 and even power over the conduct of public life. And in a sense, they are hoping that this process can be uh, an alternative to, to, to responsibility. But of course, process is not an effective substitute for responsible public life or public behavior. And therefore what you end up with is a situation where you become more and more uh, sort of dominated by this uh, as, as members of, of the elites are. I think what we're seeing now is a constant expansion of the state to partnership with NGOs, international organizations, and the private sector. I think you see this in, in Glasgow, where the circus in Glasgow you know, brings together all these different uh, bodies and interests, each of which is able to uh, sort of uh, have a role, uh, but without a, a, a role that's in the public eye, but a role that is not accountable to anything. It's, it's not accountable to anybody. I mean, who, who made the decision? Who elected the people to kind of go to Glasgow? People just, you know, I mean, I know people myself who gone to Glasgow to represent certain kinds of interests to do with the environment. Uh, and that kind of irresponsible way in which uh, th these kind of groups come together is really quite typical. I want to end by saying that uh, in many ways, what we're seeing is the fusion of politics and economics, but not in the way that uh, it existed in the past. So it's, we're not talking about the, the kind of power elites of C.W. Wright Mill, Mills. I think that what we have is a situation where both, both the pol political side of the elites and the economic side of the elites are actually mixing up and confusing their own roles in, in, in the conduct of affairs. So you've got this very confused situation where it's a big capitalist corporations who now promote values, who now promote norms, who talk about ethics and various other, other normative 
focused rhetorics. At the same time, the state and the political class has self-consciously ceased to talk about values. They don't talk about values in the same kind of sense. They don't talk about good and bad and, and right and wrong. What the state has done is it kind of uh, relies upon technocratic expertise. But in, in a sense, in, in a kind of functional way, they, they are kind of both coming together. And in the course of coming together, uh, what they are trying to do is to redefine themselves by changing their relationship, by, by developing a different kind of relationship to the rest of, uh, of society. So their impulse is to turn citizens into clients or turn citizens into stakeholders or laterally since the pandemic turn citizens into patients. So now we come to the question, what do we call them? You know, who are they and what do we call them? Now there are many names that are around. Just to give you a few, people talk about the culture elites. Kotkin talks about the, uh, the, the cognizant elites, the cultural legitimizers. Richard Florida talks about the creative class. Uh, some people talk about secular priesthood. The correctorate is one term used that I quite like sometimes. <laughs> they call the cognoscenti, the new class, the clerisy, the knowledge class, the metropolitan elite. There are many, many other names I could invent for you on this list. But what point I want to emphasize is that all these names that I've listed now tend to emphasize the role of gatekeepers. It identifies the role of the people who are in, in the business of promoting and, and monopolizing ideas and norms. They're the cultural elite in a sense. And it's interesting that they're the ones that have been brought into the frame. They're the ones that are exercising the most prominent role. But I think it's important to realize that the cultural elite is only the most visible part of a loose association of social engineers, of corporate leaders, of, professional of the professional managerial class, which are all cemented together by a kind of managerial consensus. And I think it's this managerial consensus that they all subscribe to despite their different interests and sometimes conflict of interest, that is really quite important. Because what, what constitutes the foundation of this managerial consensus is there is a sense of, of relying on, on the one hand on technocratic governance uh, and everything to do with governance, to do with social engineering, to process and cultural hegemony. And the reason why we see culture so much, why the cultural elites come to the fore so much, is because as long as they can hegemonize culture, as long as they can determine the words and the language that, are, that can be used, as long as that occurs, then the fragility and the insecurity of the rest sec other sections of, of the elite need not be tested. Thank you. You've been listening to Professor Frank Faraday reflecting on the insecurity of the ruling class and the rise of the cultural elite.
The next podcast in the series features Claire Fox, Director of the Academy of Ideas and an independent peer in the House of Lords. Claire will examine how culture wars have shaped contemporary institutions.